You're listening to The PaveCast, a podcast from Partners for Automated Vehicle Education to illuminate the world of AV technology. Learn about PAVE and its mission by visiting www.pavecampaign.org. Hello, everyone, and welcome to PAVE's 108th uh, virtual panel. Um, and this is a special edition to celebrate the uh, super blue moon. Uh, today, we'll be discussing uh, principles for autonomous urbanism, uh, livable cities through uh, collaboration. My name is Greg Rogers. I'm the founder and president of Various Public Policy, um, and I will be PAVE's guest moderator for this panel. And we're joined by a fantastic set of expert, uh, experts uh, for this discussion. And before we uh, introduce our guests, um, I'd just like to start with a few remarks to frame uh, the discussion we're going to have today. Um, today's topic, as um, those of you who know me will know, uh, is really near and dear to my heart. Um, as an urbanist who's work, been working in the AV industry for several years, I've been really passionate about the opportunity to develop AVs in a way that contributes to livable and multimodal cities. And this panel is also happening at one of the most important times uh, for local engagement and public in education around AV technology. Because after years of development um, and testing and the roller coaster of peak hype and troughs of disillusionment and everything else, this is the year that we're starting to see uh, significant deployment of revenue generating services with autonomous vehicles in multiple states and a handful of cities. And so I think today we're actually seeing one of the largest discussions we've ever had in the public about what AVs mean uh, for communities. And people naturally have a lot of questions. Uh, what does it mean for my city? How does the technology work? Um, and how does how will AVs fit into my own life? Uh, earlier this summer, the NYU Rudin Center for Transportation published its report, Principles for Autonomous Urbanism, which was developed in conjunction with five multidisciplinary working groups, which had uh, leading experts from government, academia, uh, advocacy groups, and industry. And I believe these principles uh, can lay the, the foundation for productive and harmonious relationships between AV companies, cities, and the general public. Um, with that, uh, we'll go ahead and get into it. Um, so I'll, I'd like to introduce our first two panelists. Uh, Sarah Kaufman is the interim director of the NYU Rudin Center for Transportation. And Katie Stevens is the head of policy at Neuro. Sarah and Katie are going to provide a brief overview of the project and the 10 principles. And afterwards, uh, we'll bring in our other two panelists, uh, Carlos Cruz Casas um, and Ryan Westrom. Uh, we'll have them on the stage for a discussion and Q&A. Um, so please feel free to submit questions uh, anytime using the Q&A feature in the chat. And I will turn it over to you, uh, Sarah and Katie. Um, Thank you, Greg. Um, and thank you all for attending today. It's really nice to be here today. And um, we are, are so excited to present this work to you. So thank you all so much. Um, and thank you, Greg, especially for working so closely on this project throughout its development. Um, so as, as Greg mentioned, we put out this report in June of 2023, late June, um, Principles for Autonomous Urbanism. The idea behind this, as Greg alluded to, is if the promise of autonomous vehicles comes to pass, with cities will be safer, the movement of people and, be, and goods will be um, potentially more equitable, more efficient, and more sustainable. That's the goal. Um, but we wanted to kind of stem the tide of AVs, um, AV developers, looking for a developing a solution to a 
an indirect problem, right? So um, what is the problem that they're trying to solve? But instead, looking into cities um, and what are the challenges that cities are trying to solve and what is universal among cities of all sizes. So across the United States, cities are trying to be safer for all users. They're trying to be equitable to all different populations. They're trying to be accessible to people with all different types of abilities and disabilities um, and trying to be sustainable for future generations. So these are kind of the four points that cities are are universally trying to achieve. Um, and how can AVs respond to these challenges and how can AVs help in these scenarios? So in order to uh, dive into this question, we developed multidisciplinary working groups. So we had five working groups um, throughout the fall of 2022 and then at the start of 2023. Um, we had representatives from the industry, from associations, we had academic researchers, we had advocates, um, and and a mix of stakeholders nationwide, people who were in government, um, public sector, private sector, and advocacy. Um, some of the participants listed on this slide, in case you can't see it, are Obubus, SAVE, the American Association of People with Disabilities, the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, CityFi, and Zooks. Those are just some of the organizations that were represented. So you get a sense of the of the um, breadth of perspectives that were represented in the in these discussions. So through these five discussions, we covered, um, although there are so many topics to cover, we went for seven major topics. Um, equity, so how can all populations make use of autonomous vehicles? We looked at community engagement. What is the appropriate way to reach out to community members and ensure that their concerns are heard? Uh, we looked at sustainability. What should be the requirements for um, introducing AVs into a city in terms of miles traveled and productive miles um, as vehicles are moving throughout? Um, infrastructure, how might AVs fit into urban infrastructure planning and development that's currently occurring in cities um, and planned for the future of cities. Safe streets, of course, is of utmost concern. How can we ensure that, um, that vehicles move smoothly and are safe for all road users, including pedestrians and cyclists? Um, livability, we looked at how people can um, move around a city safely, how they can live um, with a high quality of life and without concern for, um, for their safety, as well as improving the, the um, efficiency of a city. And then finally, accessibility, ensuring that any new solutions are useful and usable for people with disabilities of different types, including mobility, vision impairment, hearing impairment, cognitive disabilities, um, as well as people with temporary temporary disabilities, such as an injury or a temporary illness. What can, what can be done to help these different populations? So those are the seven topics that we hit on during these working groups. Um, and 
while it's a, while ABs are a massive undertaking, um, and there are so many other aspects to touch on, these are the seven top areas that we talked about. And then as a group, we came up with 10 principles for introducing autonomous vehicles into cities. And Katie Stevens from Neuro, who's our excellent colleague in this project, is going to introduce those 10 principles. Excellent. So um, thank you. I just want to thank uh, Sarah for all her work and NYU for all their work on this project and really thank um, Greg for all his work on this uh, tremendous uh, project for initiating it from its inception. Um, I, you know, started working on this uh, as we were, you know, far along, uh, farther along in the project and just really appreciate all the fantastic work. So um, to get to straight to the to the ten uh, principles, I wanted to start first with uh, engage early and often. I think we all acknowledge that you know AVs flourish, new tech flourishes when we are engaging communities, not just cities and cities and AVs working together, engaging with each other, but also communities. Right? We need proactive communication. We need engagement. That's you know uh, sort of rinse and repeat. Right? They were engaging with them, they're engaging with us, and then we're utilizing what we've learned and incorporating that into our operations and the way we understand each other. Uh, number two is AV companies should work with cities to help improve urban infrastructure to serve all residents and users. So this is, you know, what is the landscape of our, um, of our streets? You know, what do those streets look like? How are we um, working together to improve uh, you know, on, on the overall, you know, safe, uh, safe streets goals, uh, vision zero goals for, for a city and our communities. Um, three, communication with first responders is critical. Um, you can see this vehicle that's right behind me looks nothing like a vehicle, a standard vehicle is sitting out on the road, um, really working with first responders to understand how to interact, not just with vehicles, um, but also have direct points of contact to companies and know where to go um, with questions and certainly um, in emergency situations and urgent situations. Uh, number four is AV deployment should lead to safer streets, not stranded assets. Uh, and this is really the idea uh, people shared around a uh, working group participants shared around, um, you know, infrastructure, there may be a need for, you know, new infrastructure or capabilities um, that a city might build into, you know, um, you know, might might build into their, uh, you know, on, on their streets, um, into their infrastructure. However, um, we shouldn't build it for the sake of building it right. Um, infrastructure is expensive. It lasts, you know, if we, for example, neuro can operate on streets without additional infrastructure needs. Um, you know, if we don't absolutely need to build something, we should find a way not to have to build something unless it's obviously for the greater good of the, of the community. So ensuring we don't leave stranded assets that will never be utilized or costly and never utilized. And uh, number five is rigorous safety standards must be met. Um, and so this is, you know, utilizing the existing um, safety standards we have in place uh, some of those through the federal government, some of those through various state governments, um, and um, the already, you know, high caliber of safety standards that we must meet as, as companies um, that are introducing these new uh, vehicles on the road um, and working directly with, with cities and residents on the ground. Number six, uh, data-driven decision-making is valued. So this is, um, you know, cities and companies developing models for maximizing safety across cities. So um, how do we improve safety on our roads while protecting privacy and proprietary information? Seven is 
AVs should lead the conversion to zero emission vehicles and support or complement public transit. And I think this is truly important. It's a passion of ours, certainly, um, to make sure that we're, you know, we're introducing a new mode of travel, a uh, new mode of, you know, uh, goods movement, uh, you know, a new vehicle on the road, um, really introducing something that we'll have. And, you know, there, there's more that goes into that carbon impact, obviously, than just an electric vehicle. But, you know, doing our best to ensure that we're reducing that carbon footprint is, is and reducing particular matter, all the things that come with vehicle travel, um, that we're reducing those impacts to communities. Um, eight is, you know, us AVs should be efficient users of space. So Sarah spoke to this a minute ago, maximizing productive VMT. So miles traveled with goods and people versus without. Innovating on vehicle designs that are more narrow on the roads, providing more opportunity for active transportation, those types of things. Nine is maximizing workforce gains through public-private collaboration. So um, AV companies providing, you know, have the potential to provide living wage jobs um, and beneficial opportunities for local workers, upskilling from current positions, including those who face barriers to employment. Um, There's a lot of opportunity there. A number of companies worked with community colleges. Um, we go K through 12 education. They've worked, you know, they have upskilling programs. So there are some really unique um, opportunities to do more of this. And I think it's just a tremendous area of growth. And what we've heard is a really important part of this ecosystem um, from our working group members. And then 10, the last one is uh, economic opportunities and access to services should be equitable. Uh, and I think this was, this was certainly a thread throughout the various work group conversations um, but I think, you know, and it's truly important and it's important on a number of levels. So, you know, communicating cities when AV companies are locating facilities um, and, and, you know, those those neighborhoods, those areas um, working together to bring, you know, jobs. I just mentioned jobs to underserved areas and populations uh, working together to support customers like, um, you know, we found when we worked with Kroger you know, uh, those who qualify for government assistance, being able for, the, you know, them being able to use their SNAP benefits to be able to, you know, benefit from, you know, goods delivery, AV goods delivery, um, and finding ways to, you know, um, support one another, um, support these, you know, safe and um, useful benefits that AVs um, have on communities um, for governments and cities to work together to really um, enhance and maximize those benefits in an equitable way. Excellent. Uh, thank you so much, Katie and Sarah. Really excited to see um, the great principles that emerge from uh, this report. Um, so now I'd like to uh, welcome uh, Carlos and Ryan to the stage. Um, Carlos Cruz Casas is the Chief Innovation Officer of Miami-Dade County Department of Transportation and Public Works. And Ryan Westrom is the Vice President of Strategy um, at Citian. Um, well, thank you guys for joining us. This is a really fantastic group of folks. Um, and um, excited to get into this. We have we have a lot of uh, questions from the audience um, already, and one of the ones that we received um, in advance uh, was related to the first principle, which is uh, on engaging early and often. Um, and in my view, this is uh, certainly one of one of the most important, if not the most important. Um, so the question was from a public sector official who asked, 
What is the most effective way that a city can engage with AV companies that are looking to test or deploy in their city? Uh, when a local jurisdiction finds out after the fact, it can create several barriers to optimize deployments. Those include public perception, emergency response, et cetera. And, making, and that can result in more it, in it being more difficult to develop collaborative policies. So I guess let's start there. Um, what are the most effective ways to engage uh, for AV companies and cities to engage with one another? Yeah, I can definitely start. And thank you. Thank you for having me here. I've been uh, part of this kind of conversation for a while now and seeing things in Miami, right? Uh, where are different positions, some other agencies where we provide not only the public transportation, but we also manage the space, right? The traffic signals, the signs, the roads throughout Miami-Dade County, regardless of whether it's a city, county, state road. So, you know, I always often say, you know, we first need to kind of be a little louder in the things that we want and define the goals, right? And I think cities, you know, if, you're, if you haven't been approached yet by an AV and you have the fear they're going to be coming in, just basically being able to, to publish what you want and what you expect for new mobility solutions to come through, right? Not necessarily just the AV or technology, what are the mobility solutions that come through and how to kind of um, basically align with your goals. But I wanted to put in a little pin because one thing is cities communicating with, with AV companies, and we often kind of live behind some of the, the community in this community that we serve, right? And one of the principles, it was about community, right? And we talked about engaging with community to educate the community, right? And sometimes we forget that the community can actually educate us and educate AVs about what they want to see in the community, right? So uh, I like to go out there and I like to, to talk to, to folks out there, but let's be real. They don't want to hear from me. They want to hear from someone that they, they experience the city the same way, someone that they know, someone they actually see on a on a grocery store on Tuesday night or mass on Sunday. So uh, one thing that I'm really passionate about is, you know, through the uh, some support from the Knight Foundation, we're able to create what we call the Community Liaison Program, which is basically uh, going into the different communities where Miami-Dade County, uh, identifying kind of uh, influencers, if you will, some locals from the community that has a voice. Uh, and basically train them with the skills on how to engage with their uh, fellow community members, give them information about AV technologies and send them out to the community and allow for them to have on their own intention on being committed conversation with their uh, neighbors and get information back to us in, in, in a way that it was trusted. Right. So I found that is a great value because then you start hinting, start getting into, yes, technology might come through, but what are the values of the city community and how they experience it? And be able to inform us, and then inform the uh, the, the the private sector as a result. Uh, and as a result, of that I think was a great opportunity for us to learn. And uh, we're, I'm proud to say that we have actually created a what we call a, a community engagement playbook for new technologies coming through. So I, I want to kind of make a note about that because I think it's really interesting how we can actually engage with nonprofit organization, with community members and, and public sector to come in and identify the best ways to kind of get that information in and out. Uh, to make sure everyone is informed on both sides. That's excellent. Thank you, Carlos. And I, I want to give you guys a shout out on on, on that guide. I think it's uh, it's a great way to start. Um, Katie, would you like to weigh in from a AV company perspective? Yeah. First, I think that's tremendous too, Carlos. I think that's, um, you know, fantastic uh, to think about more cities sort of uh, working from that same model. I wanted to flag, you know, something from the AV standpoint, and there's, there are lots we can discuss around this, but I think what you talked about, Carlos, and what I wanted to expand on is this, is both one, this um, idea around humility, is that we as companies, you know, uh, tech innovators come into a community, and we should certainly expect that we are not 
the ones that understand the communities best, right? We're not going to be, we need to have that humility when we come into a city and operate. Um, it's not just the humility in working with the communities proactively um, before and when we start testing the city, but also with our city partners, right? Um, and so, you know, we really do, there's, it's a win-win situation, right? For us to really get out there and educate, utilize community events, you know, to go directly to um, communities that will be impacted, you know, and, and benefit, benefiting from the service. Um, but especially those that don't show up to community, you know, community meetings, those that, you know, you may get need to get to outside of working, uh, outside of working hours, or, you know, may, may have kids at home, may be difficult to get somewhere. Um, so you really do need to go to and have a direct point of contact, which with each AV company, um, AV company has a direct point of contact with city, city has a direct point of contact with the AV company that they, they know they can go with, with any, you know, concerns or questions. Um, and the last thing I just want to mention is, you know, I think the most important piece of this is a company monitoring community feedback and sentiment. And this has been really important for us, um, but it's been really important for the purposes of making operational changes, understanding trends, doing what we need to do to ensure that we continue to have community support for the services that we're providing. And those things are, you know, responding very quickly within a day to non-urgent, you know, community feedback we've received you know, developing responsible neighborhood operations principles document, you know, in collaboration with our internal team. So I think those things go a long way. Excellent. And of course, we would be remiss if we, remiss if we didn't acknowledge the tension that we're seeing today between San Francisco and 80 companies in, in the last few months. And, you know, as someone who uh, spent a good amount of time in the Bay Area, I can confirm, you know, San Francisco and the Bay Area is a, a very unique place with its own uh tensions and um and and certainly a culture of uh of protest but we're you know we're also seeing APs being tested in a lot of other cities with less strife um and one of the audience questions was how do you uh how do you all see the recent cruise wing approval to operate 24 7 in san francisco uh with a commercial service um do you see this as setting a stage wider adoption and what are your general sort of thoughts on on these developments Ryan, do you want to start? Start sure. off. I'll, I'll start on this one. And and uh, first of all, thanks to the the great work by NYU and Neuro. Uh, I was really privileged to participate in the working groups and uh, excited to uh, kind of dialogue on it further. Uh, really pleased to see the the principles that emerged. And and I think I would I would maybe assert that uh, you know some of the perhaps disharmony that that is present in San Francisco would have been helped by adhering to some of these principles. Uh, I think that there were opportunities on on both the public side and the private side to engage earlier and to engage uh, more frequently uh, and, uh, and to engage in different ways. Uh, you know, for instance, one of the the things that has you know virally gone around is uh, first responders attempting to communicate with an AV, right? And they're not being a two way dialogue there, and you know, just uh, utterly perplexed folks trying to to get an, an AV out of where it needed to be, right? And uh, that's something that we need to be able to solve for, right? We we have to have AVs if they need to be moved for emergency reasons or things like that, and and you know whether that ultimately results in some sort of universal standard or some sort of technology that assists in this. Uh, I, I do believe that there has to be responsibility on both sides to engage and make sure that uh, they they are handling that sort of situation. And so that would require one thing that I was thinking when I was listening to, to Carlos and Katie talk about that engagement is, you know, this is across multiple stakeholders. Uh, yes, you're exactly right, Katie. We need to have, I think it would be helpful to have a point of contact on each side. 
Uh, and sometimes companies and or uh, urban settings have a hard time identifying who that person is going to be. But also that person needs to then reach out across a broad audience. And that's going to be on the public side across multiple departments. Uh, and, you know, so in, in San Francisco, Muni has to talk to the TA, has to talk to BART, has to talk to all of the agencies that are involved in making transportation uh, work in that region and bring back communal viewpoints, right? And that that's hard because sometimes they're splintering in agencies. And that's hard for an AV company to come in and try and figure out who are the right people to talk to. But the same thing happens on the public sector side. Uh, you know, they, they are confused sometimes who to go to. And there's different parts of the AV company that might come in and talk to them for different reasons. And again, uh, these things can be smoothed with you know, some planning, uh, making sure that there's principles laid out, uh, perhaps in a, in a playbook as you're going into a city that you share uh, openly. And so um, it, it, the, the other aspect of the question that I just wanted to touch on ever so briefly is I saw a really neat map uh, yesterday about how many cities AV testing is happening in. And I think that's we can kind of lose sight. You, you mentioned in the introduction, the, the trough of disillusionment. I think for many people, the perception is that we're still there, right? Uh, this isn't working. It's, you know, it's never going to happen. Those are the sorts of things that you might hear from folks. Uh, and there's going to continue to be fits and starts. That's the nature of technology development. But as well, the nature of technology development is that there's advancement. Uh, and, you know, as, as presidential candidates have said, I, I'm willing to bet on the American people, right? I think that there's a lot of, a lot of promise in terms of uh, advancement in the realm. And we're sometimes losing focus on it. And so there, they're spread out across cities all over the place, and we're continuing to learn a lot. Multiple companies are doing really great work, uh, and that progress is going to lead to uh, continued growth. And we want that growth, the, the, the folks on the working panel and as came through in these principles, we want that growth to be in support of cities that are livable, that are safe. Um, at my current company, our focus is on safety and accessibility. Uh, and that is, you know, just start there, right? And let's make sure that the AV companies are bringing in that focus as they join cities. I, I love that. Thank you, Ryan. Um, let's let's turn to the second principle. Um, and Sarah, I'd be interested in, in your in your thoughts on how to operationalize this. It's which is that AV developers should work with cities to improve urban infrastructure for to serve all road residents and users. So what are your views, Sarah, on how cities and AV companies can really put this into action? Yeah, thanks, Greg. I think it's a really good question. And, um, you know, in, in truth, the AVs are operating on chronically underfunded and often uh, um, infrastructure that's often at the end of its useful life. So, for example, AVs rely often rely on lane markings, but I keep hearing from cities, especially Rust Belt cities, that the funding for replacing lane markings is is really dwindling. Um, and at the same time, if we're talking about AVs that pick people up or pick up goods and and deliver them, um, we need to improve the curb. So we need curb spaces, dedicated curb spaces for this active use. And who's going to develop these curbs? Who's going to pay for these kind of smart curbs? And should AVs wanting to come in and make productive use of those curbs be required to subsidize the the development of these smart curbs? Or should um, should these companies, at the very least, uh, be 
receive kind of um, procurement points for for offering this uh, this funding. So um, overall, the AV companies need to uh, at least subsidize some of the infrastructure development that's happening, and at the very least, not interfere with the standardized improvements that cities are making, often in terms of active users of the streets, things like bike lanes um, and improved sidewalks. Um, and so we need to be able to ensure that that the infrastructure developments that cities are making can operate, can be developed in harmony with and hopefully augmented by these AV companies coming into cities. Bravo, bravo, I have to say. So that's completely on point. I'm sorry to jump in, but I'm getting excited about this, right? And I think, you know, you know, um, we, uh, and I believe is our former, uh, our friend and former Waymonat uh, Team P, he'd probably be around, Team Papandreou, that once told me, um, a city that is good for AV is a city that is great for someone walking and biking. So, so I think I say, let's just continue to build cities that are great for walking and biking. Let's put our focus on that, and the AVs will enjoy that, right? The AVs will enjoy of a more organized and orchestrated use of the public right away. I think that's the first thing that we need to focus on. And Sarah, you talked later about the curb utilization. Curb is becoming one of the most priced uh, kind of. Uh, pieces of our infrastructure. And I think instead of start uh, dedicating spaces for individual uses, we need to be smarter in the way that we manage the curb, in the way that we interact with that curb. And this concept about curb management is not foreign. It's something that we have done over the years with science, right? Park here between this hour and this hour, no park here and go transfer because uh, it's from one side to the other. We have the opportunity, and again, with AVs, being a computer on wheels, have the opportunity to actually be able to deliver policies in a more dynamic way that we can actually maximize the use of that curve. So if you want to invest from an AV point of view in terms of how to best utilize the space on the public right away, let's invest on trying to ingest digital policies through digital infrastructure, such as the mobility data specification or the curb data specification. These are elements that cities can actually work towards spreading out the use of the rules of engagement of the public right away and get information back on how that's being used, right? The benefit of that is the fact that it's a standard. That once you go to DC and apply that, you just change the end of that API to Miami, it's the same, right? So it's an opportunity for us to make be smart on our investment uh, from both in the public sector, because our investment should be on bike and walking and livability and on the private sector investment on, on how to interact with digital infrastructure uh, and data policies. So Chambers Block, I think is opportunities. If you have to, if the folks want to learn more about MDS and CDS, please feel free, feel free to reach out or to the Open Mobility Foundation, which you know the talented staff there is very knowledgeable about all this. So I'll I'll jump back on, on that. So I think you're exactly right, Carlos. But I think it's worth making the point that there's work on both sides to do that. I mean, and, and, and remember when we're talking about principles to behave principally is in, in a principled fashion is not necessarily more easy. It's sometimes harder, right? Like we have to work at it. And so, you know, in that example where, where Sarah, you, you brought up and Carlos, you're, you're, you're talking about curbside, there's, there's responsibility on both sides that is sometimes hard, right? On the public side, you actually have to have that talk, that conversation about dedicating space at the curbside. That might mean eliminating some permanent vehicular parking. That might mean changing the use case and, and opening up that space for shared use. Uh, 
And that's that's a political conversation. And, uh, you know, sometimes when you're talking to a city and you say, you know, what do you want from, from us? Well, we want curb space. And they're like, oh, oh, that's hard. Well, yes, it is hard. You have to exert some political will. Uh, but then on the private side, uh, we actually have to be able to get to the curb, right? So the AV companies have to be able to pull over to the curb. Right now, sometimes in operation, uh, you know, it's just stop in the middle of the street because it's easier. Guess what? It is. It is harder to to use the technology to get into the curb, especially if there's not space there. Uh, parallel parking is very difficult for AVs right now, right? So to back in, uh, that's something that is it's difficult for a lot of human drivers as well. Uh, but th that's something that we, we maybe can demand, right? Uh, and I think that doing that hard work allows something like a sophisticated and, and dynamic curbside management system to then be effective and be able to roll across the country. But it's it's not entirely easy, I guess, is the point I would make. Yeah, that's that's those are all fantastic points. And um as as a curb nerd myself and a former Uber and Lyft driver um who who struggled with pickup drop offs, I will say that holy cow would make a huge difference, not just for the folks who are using AVs, but uh, taxi drivers, paratransit users, um, everyone who needs use of the curb, including during daytime deliveries. And this is a big question that I think um, cities need to be looking at. And, and we all need to be looking at and figuring out how to solve together um, because it does have tangible impacts on safety and efficiency. Um, Sarah, just uh, turning to you on a quick question about how this report was framed. Um, the principles were uh, written to apply broadly to American cities of all, all sizes, um, large and small. Um, can you explain why this was an important part of, of this uh, of this initiative? Sure. Thanks, Greg. And um, and you and I had many conversations about what can we possibly say uh, about cities of all sizes, because there's so every city, of course, is different. Um, obviously I'm speaking from New York, which has its own exceptionalism going, but, um, but in terms of cities of all sizes, you know, there are a lot of universal goals, um, regardless of, regardless of the size of the city, um, cities are striving towards greater livability, greater efficiency, more safety on streets, um, because pedestrian and cyclist safety, as well as, of course, uh, driver and passenger safety, are at an, at an extreme crisis level right now. Um, so cities are trying to achieve these goals of efficiency, sustainability, safety, and equity, accessibility. And these are all universal truths. People should be able to get around no matter what their situation is. And um, cities, regardless of their size or shape or density, are all responsible for ensuring the usability of the city by all users. And so regardless of where AVs might deploy, cities are working towards these goals because uh, not only are they required to, but because it makes their cities better places to live work and play in. So um, so I do think that it's uh, not easy to, to say that all cities have, have these things in common, but it is easy to say that there are similar goals that uh, many cities are striving towards. Great. Thank you, Sarah. Um, so that was important for folks to, to note here. Um, so 
You know, one thing that I think is important to remember is that urbanists are not a uh, monolithic uh, group, um, but we have seen urbanist concerns that AVs can impact public transit ridership, the number of people who choose to bike or walk. Um, what recommendations did the working group have, and 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 what are your all's thoughts on how to integrate AVs into the existing mobility ecosystem? I can start unless uh, Katie or Sarah, you want, you want to start? Be good. So, so I'm, I'm going to say this one one quick thing, uh, Greg. Uh, AVs by themselves are not a mobility solution, right? It, it is it is actually a device, right? Now, how, what do apply the AV technology to? It is the solution, right? Whether we apply, apply it to deliveries, we apply it to transit, or other other components of it, right? So, you know, for example. You know, uh, to me, uh, our, our best application for AVs today is to operate on their on-demand uh, transit environment, like like uh, like Coconut in Miami-Dade County, Metro Micro in LA, and so on, right? Uh, why? Because it is it, it is a transit-like vehicles that run in a small geofence area at a, a low, basically lower speeds and short trips. That to me is a great opportunity to start basically bringing some of this AV technology into transit, right? Uh, and this is a, a we start seeing, and we talked earlier in this conversation about companies start listening to what cities want, where you start seeing companies building uh, form factors that actually are great for shared rights, right? So the, the one that cruises testing or deploying in some other areas is moving away from the sedan uh, into a form factor like that. However, that's not to say that AVs that operate like a robotaxi or a, or a TNC cannot also be part of the solution. For example, you know, in our microtransit program, whether it's AV or not, we're, we're going to have an environment that when the supply exceeds the demand, we're going to be able to basically offload the trips to an Uber, a Lyft, or a taxi. Why? Because as a, as, a, as a transit agency, we should not be designing our transit network just for the big service, neither the on-demand component. And being able to apply the base fleet allows for our system to be more scalable. And being able to then bring AVs uh, technology to a TNC or a robotaxi can actually help us offload that excess capacity, I'm sorry, excess demand that we have, and be able to maintain and supply the ser service that we have to everyone and more consistent throughout the day. So I think there's an opportunity for AVs to come through, but ultimately is what will apply to AV4. Uh, to me at the moment, microtransit and TNC support microtransit are the, uh, the the first to go, and then we'll see what that goes from there. Yeah. And I just wanted to add, um, you know, this was an area that was, as Greg alluded to, that was discussed quite a bit, right? Which is, you know, we don't want to degrade, um, you know, the public's transit service. Um, you know, we want to improve it and we want AVs to support it. I think, you know, we're looking at obviously a couple models that exist today, but over the course of time, there being, you know, more enhanced utilization. But right now, you know, utilizing it for, you know, to help supplement paratransit services, right? Um, building really accessible vehicles, truly accessible vehicles to, again, supplement some of those services. Some of those can be very costly um, to maintain. Um, it could be actually, uh, you know, from a customer utilization standpoint, could be a long, you know, journey from their house to the store. It could be half a day um, that's, you know, they take and they would rather not take. And so, a company, you know, could come in and deliver goods to their door instead or take them from point A to point B, maybe in a more cost-effective way. So 
I think the bottom line here is, you know, this is an area for increased evolution and a really exciting area. And I think we've not even begun to break the surface, but really excited to see what others um, with advocates, cities and industry at the table can do to, to support one another. Carlos, do you have something else? No, I, I get excited, right? So it's a neat, <laughs> as, we, as we see the evolution of transit, right, and particularly, you know, uh, the introduction of uh, micro transit or on-demand transit solutions, and finally, and I want to say this, we're very, very passionate, the new technologies that we have seen arrive to our communities uh, over the last decade are finally making it to the part of the community that needs it most, which is the paratransit community. They've been left behind in all this evolution. They cannot ride a scooter, they can ride a bike, they cannot do certain things that we've seen. On-demand transit has shown that our paratransit models are actually a little archaic, and we can actually introduce more of these on-demand components to it. Katie, and I think it is completely on point, and our vision is if we're able to first get paratransit riders into on-demand transit, we're going to give them a better experience uh, and ultimately at a lower cost to us because it costs less to operate a microtransit solution than paratransit. That's the first thing. But the second thing, if we're able to take the driver and put the chair on a swivel and have the driver face back and be able to cater to the passenger during the day, during that trip, is a lot better because again, more, again, we do operate a paratransit service for over 500 vehicles in Miami-Dade County, and and some of the the riders that we had, they need attendance, they, they need attention, and they need help to get on and off the vehicles and understand where they're going and help them how they can navigate their life beyond that. So I do applaud that. I see that see that's the evolution moving forward, and the fact that now this idea about microtransit solution and paratransit emerging, and the fact that AV technology can help make it a lot more sustainable and ultimately a lot more scalable for us to provide services in 24-7, which is what we do. Awesome. Um, well, I wish we had uh, three more hours here because I think we've we have very only scratched the surface. Um, but for folks who submitted uh, questions in the Q&A, uh, we'll take a look at those and uh, share those with our panelists in case um, they can reach out and share. But so for a final question, folks, I'll ask all of you um, one by one is um, we have these principles um, here. Um, where do you see the biggest opportunities You know, today in the next year, uh, let's say, um, to take action, um, how do we start to operationalize these? And if if you also have ideas for other things that you would like to explore that you have time for in the project as well, we're also really interested to hear those. Who would like to start, uh, Sarah? Sure. <laughs> um, I I want to go back to the beginning of um, of my comments on AVs should be a solution to a problem and not just kind of a standalone shiny toy. Um, but so I think that the real area of opportunity here is for communities to pinpoint what issues they have, be it safety or access or um, or even curb access as, as Carlos was excited about. Um, and work with AV companies to see how the companies can answer these solutions. Um, as Katie probably uh, will, would share a lot about is um, Neuro has done a great job with answering to food desert issues in communities in Houston. And, um, and that's a great example of, of an AV company responding to a community need. And I think that there are probably thousands of examples of that across U.S. cities. Um, 
that can be problems that can be solved through proper collaboration. And so I'd love to see more of that kind of identification of a problem and where these needs can be met by AV developers. I'll maybe jump in next uh, and, and leave the thunder uh, for for Katie and Carlos. I, I, so a, a couple of things popped into my my mind, uh, but I think you know when you when you set the horizon at one year, you, even though in my last one I you know I noted that there's a lot of progress happening. I think we also have to remember that that it's not something that we just snap our fingers and happen. So I think that in one year it we might be in a place where we feel like not a lot of progress has happened. But it has, but there's more to be done, right? I mean, and I remember having this conversation uh, a couple, a few years ago, uh, just pre-pandemic, uh, as we were moving into uh, this decade and, and saying, like, this is a decade conversation, not a year conversation. Um, that said, all of a sudden, decades move fast, right? And th I think that that's one thing to remember. But what can we do in the next year? I think that, you know, there's a really neat question from, from Alex about, you know, there, there's sometimes a tension about sharing data, like how, and, and data is a way that, that the private side and the public side communicate back and forth. How do they do that? What's most effective in communicating? I think data is a piece of that, but I think that both sides need to kind of sharpen their pencil and, you know, AVs, instead of thinking reflexively, like, no, we're not going to share data. What could we share? that could be pragmatic and useful. You know better than anybody what data you have that might be useful. But then on the public side, instead of just you know painting with a broad brush, we want everything. What are the key specific things that we know they have that, that are not going to uh, be personally, include personally identifiable information or things like that uh, and be problematic that actually would be useful, right? And, and sharpen those conversations and think. And I think that that's something, I, I've seen that that conversation evolve already. I think that's something that can that can definitely happen in the next year. Mm -hmm. Excellent, I do agree, right? And I think from here is a, it's a great set of principles. Well, love for 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 us to do or for the communities to actually ingest them and get read them and be very informed about this and be able to have a conversation in their own communities, right? About whether or not this is in line and what actually that means for them moving forward, right? So I think the first thing, and I think next year we can make sure everyone knows about this, basically provide information back. Um, there's a couple of things that I think are very valuable. You know, there's a, a lot going on in terms of AVs, right? And I think it's more meaningful conversation with the, with the companies, right? That come through and basically, as they go into different cities and start seeing deployment, let's find out I'm, I'm at a, a common table and basically sit down and said, are we meeting these principles? I think it's another opportunity to put this into action. And the last thing I will say is I'm gonna call attention to, you know, um, USDOT uh, is also kind of putting some 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 little seeds into this moving forward, right? And particularly the the smart grant, you know, the selected fifty nine cities, eight or net of them actually is part of a cohort of uh, cities working together towards uh, pushing forward the the curb management approach and basically towards zero uh, emission delivery vehicles that might include vans, minivans, or bikes. Right. And I think that same component and the development of CDS and MDS around that is going to be great of valuable input and having AV companies join the conversation, whether or not they're in those cities, right, whether or not you're participating there, start joining that conversation early on, will be able to at least inform us as we develop that. So when they're ready to come down to Miami, to San Francisco, San Jose and other places, that you're already, uh, your input is being taken into consideration, right? So there's a, a few things that next year is going to bring, and I'm very excited about potentially have, you know, what's the episode 208 uh, next year uh, and talk about what we achieved already. Awesome. Thanks, Carlos and Katie.
Yeah, I'll just be quick. Um, so I'm going to take us from the trough of disillusionment to the uh, was it plateau of productivity or something. <laughs> I think we're we're almost to that point. I think we're at a critical point in time where we've gotten through that trough. We're now, you know, like true to every tech innovation over the course of time, right? It's highly predictable. So now we're at this point at which, you know, policymakers and industry leaders are working together on what is that, you know, how are we going to work together, right, in this box? So yes, data was a a topic of conversation that was quite popular as an area to continue to explore um, beyond this working group. So I'll just say, I think it was data, but I'll just expand that to say information sharing, right? It's not that we need um, data, uh, you know, um, you know, that's proprietary. We, you know, we don't need data on everything. We need very targeted information potentially to share with one another. And I appreciate Ryan's comments around identifying what that is specifically. And I'll just, I'll just um, amen to that. The second one, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention, we need a federal framework. We don't have one in the U.S. Um, we don't have a federal framework um, we don't have, you know, necessarily clear. Uh, we need to make sure we preserve clear state and federal uh, jurisdictional lines, um, and you know, really to be able to achieve, um, you know, the the promise of this, you know, the ability for this, um, you know, this technology to continue to uh, improve safety on our streets and and service everyone. We really need to make sure that there's, um, you know, that that certainty uh, that can only be provided the, uh, you know, federal framework and making sure that we do our bid on the national regulatory front as well as the state level, which they've been very helpful and participatory. So. Amen to that. Well, um, thank you to all of you and thank you to everyone for joining us. Um, This was a really tremendous discussion. Um, The recording will be um, available on PAVE's website uh, a little bit afterwards. Um, So you can find it at pavecampaign.org, share it with your friends or have a watch party with your family over a, Labor Day weekend. Uh, but uh, thank you everyone for joining. This was a really great discussion um, and look forward to seeing these principles uh, put into action. Thank you for listening to the PaveCast, hosted by Partners for Automated Vehicle Education. To learn more about this and other topics related to automated vehicles, visit our website at pavecampaign.org or follow us on your favorite social media at PaveCampaign.